Well, welcome back to my study. It's been over two weeks since I've done a podcast video recording. And the reason for that is, uh, well, I would just say glitch. Uh, we had we had a glitch. And when glitches happen, they happen and things get put on pause. I, uh, I, I had a glitch with my, I have an old Land Cruiser. It has a quarter of a million miles on it. And it just keeps going and going and going. But the check engine light went on about the same time we had a technological glitch. And uh, the good news is uh, the Land Cruiser and this thing is happening. They're, they're back in the groove. And I'm in my study. Uh, I haven't left this study for 14 straight days. Actually, that's not true. But I'm glad to be back. And things have changed in the last two weeks. The study we're doing, we've been calling it Fighting Off Fear. And there has been a shift. And the shift has been, well, I read a study this morning from an epidemiologist, and I can't believe I actually said that word correctly. And I will not say it again or even try to say it again. I, I got it right the first time. I've, um, I'm grateful for that. So this guy at Stanford, I'm going to call him a doctor. He made the statement recently that we're at a point now and there's been a lot of sickness and there's been deaths, as, as you all know. He said this, if you were to get the virus now, where we are is that for every thousand people that have the virus, there will be one death. Now, that's a massive improvement. So there's been a shift in the fear. The fear, even a couple of weeks ago, when we heard the projections that 100,000 to 240,000 Americans will die, well, that's gotten a lot better. And so now there's been a shift from the fear of a couple of weeks ago. The, the, the fear was, will I get the virus and will I stay alive? That has changed. And now the concern is not will I stay alive. The concern is now will I be able to make a living? Because we're all looking at the economy. And when you do go out to the store to buy a mask or to buy bologna or whatever you're doing out there, it's empty. It, America is a ghost town. The whole world's a ghost town. You've seen the webcams of London and all the cities around the world. Everybody's at home. We can't keep doing that. There's going to be economic ramifications. And so that's how it shifted. And so there's all these fears. Well, I have a job. Will I be able to keep my job? Uh, I've had to lay people off if you uh, have a company. All these economic fears. Will I be able to pay my mortgage? Will I be able to pay my bills? Gosh, I applied for an SBA loan and uh, I didn't get in in time. And what about, will there be a second round and all this? And it can make us absolutely frantic. So how do we fight off fear? So I saw this article earlier from the International Monetary Fund. And the headline was, this great lockdown that we're in will result in worst global recession since the Great Depression. Now, to what extent that's true remains to be seen. And on the second page of that article, they had some economists who said we'll recover fairly quickly. And then, of course, there were other guys on the other side. Oh, no, this is going to be the worst thing. And nobody knows. What we know is we're, we're, in, we're in trouble and everything has changed and everything is upside down. 
So how do we fight off fear? I remember back in uh, elementary school when they taught us about fractions. Before you could work a fraction, you had to reduce a fraction to its lowest common denominator. So all these fears and anxieties about the economy and if we're going to make it and pay the mortgage in college and all that, okay, let's reduce it down to its lowest common denominator. So I, I have a couple of questions. And actually, I don't have the questions. They're questions that are on our hearts. Every person, every person has got this question. Who knows Christ? Those who don't know Christ, they're also asking the question. But if you're a Christian and you're following the Lord Jesus and you know him, he's told us in Matthew 6, and we went over that a couple weeks ago, don't be anxious about what you're going to eat, what you're going to wear. Uh, your father knows that you need these things. So seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. So three times he tells us in there, do not worry, do not worry, do not worry. Don't worry about your life. So what do we do? We worry about our lives. Because stability is gone right now. And he knows us, he gets us, he understands. But he wants to comfort us. So here's the question that's on the heart of everybody, every Christian. The question is this. It's in your heart, it's in my heart. And the question is this. Can I trust God with my future? Because right now, the future is not clear. We don't know if this is going to be, is it going to be a depression like the Great Depression? Or is it going to be, we'll be out of it in a few months? Or we don't know. But we're anxious. So the question is, can I trust God with my future? Whenever you ask that question, can I trust God with my future? You're always asking a second question. And the second question is, can I trust God with the timing of my future? Because timing is always absolutely critical. Whatever it is you're concerned with in regard to your future, timing always plays an integral part, especially if you're under great pressure, especially if the clock is running, you're getting to the end of the month, and you're looking at your checking account, and you're running out of money, and there's no money coming in. That's pressure. That'll make you sweat. So can I trust God with my future? Can I trust God with the timing of my future? You want to hear some good news? God owns time. God invented time. That helps me right there. Uh, Jesus said to the Pharisees, they were accusing him of having an illegitimate birth. And he answered them and he, and he just absolutely infuriated them. And he said, you know, Abraham longed to see my day. And he said, Abraham, I mean, my gosh, that was hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. I am. You know what he's saying there? He's, he is saying he is the eternal, existent God. He, he has always been. God has always been. I remember when I was a kid asking my dad, so where did God come from? And, and he said, he didn't come from anywhere. He's always been. And I'm six or seven years old, and I'm trying to fathom that. And I go, yeah, but okay, Dad. And I go back in my mind as far as I can in time. But where did he come from? Well, he's always been. Uh, Jesus existed uncreated before the worlds began. 
he has always been. He always will be. He owns time. Time is a uh, gadget on his Swiss Army knife. So my times are in his hand, as we're going to see in a minute. So can I trust God with my future? Can I trust God with the timing of my future, the economic pressure you're under? And then ask this question. Ask this question. It's good to ask questions when you're under stress and when you're uh, worried sick. Can I trust God with my future? Can I trust God with the timing of my future? Then ask yourself this question. How did I get a future? That's a good question. And you say, well, what, what do you mean? That's kind of a dumb question, isn't it? What do you mean? How did, I, how, how did I get a future? I have a life. Therefore, I have a future. Precisely. So ask the next question. How did you get a life? See, that's the real question. How did you get a life? Did you go online and apply to get a life? No. God, God ordained before the foundations of the world that you would exist. So we go to core verses. When, when we're under anxiety and worry and fear, once again, and I've said this in these previous the couple of these things we've done prior to this, you have to think, and you have to think biblically, and you have to go to some core verses. And I mentioned these verses, but I want to go to them again. Psalm 139.16 is a core verse, and every time I recite this, it calms me down. David is looking back over his life in Psalm 139.16. He talks about the greatness of God. The first 12 verses, he's talking about the greatness of God, all of the attributes of God. And then when he gets to verse 13, he starts talking about himself. And, and he goes back to the womb. And I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. And how God put him together. And then he says in verse 16, your eyes have seen my unformed substance. Uh, he's talking about before he would show up an ultrasound. There was no ultrasound, but... Uh, your kids showed up on ultrasound. I remember mine did. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance. Unformed substances, a sperm and an egg don't show up on ultrasound 10,000 years before they're conceived. But God knew about you before the foundations of the world. This is why you have a future. This is why you have a life. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance. Now watch this. And in your book, they were all written the days that were ordained for me. That, that, that's a stunning statement. It's a fabulous statement for when you're worried about your future, when you're worried about the timing of your future. God has a plan for your life that he wrote in his book when you were a sperm and an egg. That's true for you. It's true for me. It's true for your kids. It's true for your grandkids. That's, that's a core verse. Another core verse would be uh, Psalm 3115. My times are in your hand. From, uh, from the womb to the tomb. It is appointed for a man once to die, Hebrew says. We all come out of the womb with an expiration date. All of us. Some, some die early, some die when they're very, very old, some die shockingly of a heart attack in their 30s, but God determines the number of days, and he has determined the number of breaths I have left and the number of breaths that you have left. 
It's in his hand. My times are in his hands. All of my times. Yet, Psalm 138.8 says, the Lord will accomplish that which concerns me. So God has a plan for my life. God has a plan for your life. He has uh, a purpose for my life. He's created me with certain gifts. He withheld certain gifts. But he brings me into the kingdom of God through the blood of Christ. And then he uses the gifts and skills and he uses me for his kingdom and to give a cup of water in Jesus' name. Not everybody's a preacher. God doesn't want everyone to be a preacher, but he uses all of his people. Some have gifts of mercy, some have gifts of teaching, some have gifts of encouragement. Uh, there are no little people, as Francis Schaeffer used to say, and there are no little places. We're all in the kingdom of God, and we're all important. And the Lord will accomplish that which concerns me. In other words, he has a plan for your life and a plan to use you. And the Lord will accomplish that which concerns me. In other words, you can't die till your work is done. Now think that through. If you can't die till your work is done, that means God has to sustain you until you take your last breath. And he will sustain you. He has promised to sustain you until you take your last breath. That's why he says to us, don't worry about your life. Now, is, does that mean I just sit on the couch all day and eat bonbons? No. I am to work. I am to do the next right thing. I am to be responsible. I am not to be passive. Uh, that's, that's common sense. Whatever you do, Colossians 3, do you work heartily, not as unto men, but as unto Christ. It's the Lord's Christ. It's the Lord Christ whom you serve. But we're to be active. We're to be productive. We are to work, unless we're not physically able to do so. That's how we normally get our provision. But sometimes provision is cut off. And that's what we're all concerned about right now, because we can't go out and work, most of us. And then therefore, here comes the anxiety. Well, how am I gonna pay for this and how am I gonna do all this? Okay, it makes sense. It makes consent, it makes sense. We're worried about it. Mary and I were talking the other night and I, I've been doing a lot of walking, so Right out that window, I can see our street. And we live at the end of the cul-de-sac, and I'll walk down to the end and walk back, and I'll do it around noon, and then I'll do it later in the afternoon, and then I'll do it at night, 9 o'clock or so. And she asked me the other night. We were talking, and we were just discussing all this. And she said, what are you – how are you doing with all this? And it had been real busy for several days with different things. And I said, well, uh, I'm fine. And, you know, then we got more specific. And, and I said, you know, when I walk at night and there's nobody out there and it's been real clear at night, I'll stop on my walk once or twice. And I'll just stop and I'll look up at the moon. And then I'll look at the stars and I'll look at the Big Dipper. And I'll just look. And the heavens are telling of the glory of God. He created those stars. He put them in place. He knows them by name, Isaiah 40 says. The earth is his footstool. His throne is in the heavens. His sovereignty, his absolute control rules over all. And I look up and I look at those stars and I think about who made those stars 
and that he is my father and that he sent the Lord Jesus Christ to die for me on the cross and purchase my salvation. And then he has promised to sustain me and he will accomplish that which concerns me. So I said to Mary, I, I kind of go through that when I'm out walking. And so as we're looking at all this stuff, is it concerning? Yeah. Am I worried? No. Why not? Because I know the one who made those stars. I know the one who made me. And he has made promises to me that he does not want me to be sick with worry. No, he wants me to use my head. He wants me to be in the word. He wants me to seek his wisdom. And I'm trying to do that. But he doesn't want me absolutely tied up in knots. He doesn't want you tied up in knots. He, and he knows your bank balance. He knows that what you've got due. And he knows the timing of it. And he's already got a solution. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. That's either true or it isn't. And if it's not true, we're in trouble. But it's true. I, I quoted a few weeks ago, Psalm 46.1. I love this verse. God is a refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. And I mentioned in the New American Standard Bible in the margin, it translates it this way. God is a refuge and strength. He is abundantly available for help in tight places. I love that verse. He's not a, so are you in a tight place right now financially? He knows that. Now here's the deal. If you know Jesus and you're following Jesus and he's your Lord and he's your Savior, he's got you. He, he knows all about you. He knows 10,000 things about your situation you don't even know that I don't know. We don't even comprehend. But he knows. And he has made a promise to provide for us and to sustain us. He has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. See, this is where you grab on to the promises of God. This is the only thing that will keep you sane. The, these are the only things, these verses, these promises that God has made. They're the only thing, they're the only things that enable you to have genuine peace in, in the midst of turmoil. They are they're bedrock. They're absolute bedrock. Here's the other thing I need to know. Ecclesiastes 7, I think it's verse 13, says, Consider the work of God. Who can straighten what he has bent? We all have things in our lives that are bent that we wish weren't there. We pray and ask God to take them away. And sometimes he does, and sometimes he doesn't. He leaves them be for a while. Why? He's going to teach us some lessons through hard things. Consider the work of God. Who can straighten what he has bent? In the day of prosperity, be glad. And God's been good to all of us. And we're thankful. In the day of prosperity, be glad. In the day of adversity, consider. Think. Ponder. When you hit adversity. For God has made the one as well as the other. Some Christians think that prosperity comes from God Adversity comes from Satan. That's not what the scripture says. When Job was afflicted, and, and some right now, perhaps you're afflicted physically or you're afflicted um, financially, and this is why you're, you're very worried and kind of frantic what's going to happen. It was Job, the most righteous man on the face of the earth, 
and he was being tested by the Lord, and he didn't understand. He didn't know he was being tested. But suddenly, these disasters hit his life, and including the loss of his kids in a natural disaster. And Job tore his clothes, and Job said, the Lord gives, and Satan takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, that's what he didn't say. Job said, the Lord gives, and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Well, why would the Lord take something away from us? Have you ever taken some th- something away from your kids that you gave them? I took a car away, an old Jeep from one of my sons. Uh, it's a long story. I won't go into it, but he wasn't paying attention for about a year. And he would use that Jeep to take him, him and his brother quite a distance to school. And, uh, it was an interesting year. He wasn't paying attention. He wasn't listen, listening. He wasn't, uh, and he'd tell you this now, and we laugh about it. It wasn't funny back then. He was pretty rebellious. And I had to take some things away to get his attention. It didn't make a difference. And then I had to take something else away. And finally, one day he showed up and the Jeep was gone. And he said, hey, Dad, where's my Jeep? I said, that, that's not your Jeep. That's my Jeep. He said, well, yeah, yeah, but where's the Jeep? And I said, I gave it away to a family who needed a vehicle. And he said, what? I said, yeah, I gave it away. And he was stunned. Uh, He couldn't even speak. And he said, Dad, does does this have to do with this uh, uh, privilege privilege responsibility thing? That the more responsible I am, the more privileges? I I, I said, yeah, it does, actually. Very good, John. And and he said, but Dad, I mean, that's excessive. I said, yeah, it kind of is, isn't it? And we never needed to get to this point. We never had to get this far, but we did this and you didn't respond. And we did this. Uh, I had to do this, John. One day you're going to have to do something like this with your kids. And it's no fun, but you know what? I love you too much not to do it. I've got to get your attention. And and now we, we will talk about it every once in a while. We'll laugh about it. And uh, he knows that's coming. One day, his his guys are small, but in 10 years, they'll be teenagers. Will he have to give and then take away? Yeah. And see, I'm a pretty average dad. Our father is perfect. He does that to get our attention. Uh, That's why he does it. And he has lessons for us to learn in, in these adverse situations. He wants our full and undivided attention and obedience. But you say, Steve, I'm really, really in a tight place, and I'm and I, I'm really trying to follow the Lord. Okay, good. Then you're in a good place. When you're in a situation, when I and I look back over my life, and I'll tell you something else. When I was out walking, and I told Mary this, you know, we've been married. I think this is our 43rd year of marriage that we're into now. We, we've, you, you know. Uh, when you get married, you're young and you think everything's going to be perfect, but we made those vows for better or worse. And when you're young, you think it's always going to be better, but you're going to hit worse. And we hit some worse stuff. And if you've been married, you know what that's about for better or worse, richer, poorer, sickness, and in health. When we're young, we think it's going to be better, richer health, but that's not how life is. Sometimes it's worse. Sometimes there's sickness. Um, sometimes there's no money. And those are the tough times in a marriage, but those are the times that build marriages. 
I can look back. I'm, I'm, I turned 70 this year. I can look back and I look at those stars and the God who made those stars. But I, I can also look back over my life when we hit rough patches, hard patches, and I see the faithfulness of God. And God never failed me. Was he severe with me sometimes? Yeah, and I needed it. There were lessons I had to learn. Here's what I want to say. If you're in a tight place, if you're in a hard place, you want to be very teachable. You, you don't want to get, it makes no sense to get mad at God. He loves you and he knows what he's doing in your life, even if you don't get it. You want to be as teachable as you can possibly be. And the thing to pray in these situations, and Mary and I over the years have prayed together, Lord, teach us everything you have for us to learn in this season of life. These seasons of hardship don't go on forever. There tends to be a beginning, a middle, and an end, and we don't know where we are in the process. Will I always be in this? There tends to be a beginning, a middle, and an end. And God knows the sequence, and he knows how many days he has ordained for this wilderness that you're in. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, literally, even though I walk through the valley of deepest darkness, this is Psalm 23, 4, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Notice what he says, even though I walk through. He doesn't say even though I avoid or fly over or tunnel under even though I walk through. The way you know you're in a wilderness, in a valley of deep darkness is, you think you'll never get through it. But when you walked with him for decades, you look back and you thought you'd never get through it and he got you through it. And then another one came, you thought you'd never, and he got me through every one of those things and he'll get me through this one. That's why I'm not worried. But I want to be teachable. You're in a tight place. And you know what we're doing right now? It's interesting to me, <clears throat> a number of years ago, I was reading through Psalms, and every time I saw the word wait, I'd circle it. The word wait, I don't like that word. I, I, I really, I don't want to wait. I don't want to wait for anything. Uh, I don't like yellow lights. That's why I tend to hit the accelerator. Because if I don't hit the accelerator, that's going to turn red, and i got to wait. Well, I don't have time to wait. It's interesting to me how often in Scripture God tells us to wait. Just wait. In the Old Testament, they were led, the children of Israel, in the wilderness for 40 years. There was a, there was a cloud by day, and that cloud protected them from the hot sun. There was a pillar of fire by night, and that fire, you ever been in a desert at night? It can be 120 degrees, and you'll be freezing that night. So in, the, in God's provision... He had a cloud that was the air conditioning in the desert by day, and it turned into a pillar of fire by night, and that was their central heat. Here's the other thing. He led them by the cloud and by the pillar of fire. And when that thing moved, they moved. And when it stopped, they stopped. There are times God wants us to wait. Now, waiting on God, some people get weird. Waiting on God doesn't mean you're just utterly passive and you don't do anything. That, that's not what it means. You have responsibilities. I have responsibilities. 
you, you keep doing your responsibilities. You keep doing the next right thing. You, you're, you're, you're not just, um, you're not a sluggard. You're active and you do what you can do and you do it unto the Lord. But there are times where God hymns us in. And right now, this is a time where God has hymned us in. And we're having to wait on God. Quite frankly, the whole world is waiting on God. Even those who don't even believe in God are waiting on God. And they're scared spitless. Because they think this is the only world that there is. Secularism, we have love a secularist government. We have a secularist education system. What's secularism? It believes this is the only world that there is. Jesus said that there is another world. This is just preparation for the next world. If you're a secularist and you believe this is all there is <clears throat> and there's no God, I'll tell you what, you're scared spitless right now because everything you depend on, you can't depend on anymore. And you can't, the, the whole world is in a wait mode. <clears throat> Isn't this interesting to watch how, how it's out of control? No one can get their arms around it. Even the most powerful people in the world cannot fix this. They cannot fix the time. They're trying to their credit but they don't have the power. But God does. Jesus does. Uh, this is in his hands. And this is, and you say, but Steve, I'm waiting and I'm under great pressure. Okay, I want to give you three principles. And I got a little timer here. <clears throat> it's really convenient because I can look down and know exactly how long I've been talking. And I really like that because I could go on for about three hours on this and I, I, I won't do that. But I'm right at 31 minutes and six seconds, all right? So let me take a few minutes. I wanna give you three principles if you're waiting on God. Uh, and when I say waiting on God, sometimes God hymns us in. For instance, <clears throat> if you get cancer and you gotta go through chemotherapy, you gotta go through chemotherapy. And it's no fun and you get nauseous and all in your hair and all that stuff, but you gotta go through it for a certain amount of time. And, and you got to wait to go through the treatment. It's no fun, but it's necessary. There are times when things are out of our control and we have to wait. The whole world's waiting on God. We're waiting on God. So let me give you three principles when God calls us to wait, when uh, he's got us hemmed in. And these aren't my principles. These come from a pastor in England about 300 years ago, Obadiah Sedgwick. Here's his first principle. In your life, God will take time, but he will never waste time. I love that. In your life, God will take time, but he will never waste time. And see, I hate to wait. I pray, and Lord, I, you know, I'm in this hard situation, and just deliver me right now. And Can he deliver me right now? Sure. Does he always deliver me immediately? No. Why not? because he knows what I need and he knows what he's doing. And there are lessons he wants me to learn. You, you know what all this stuff is about when hardship and difficulty comes into our lives? He's teaching us to trust him. 
He's teaching us that we can trust him. Why would I say the other night when I was talking with Mary, why would I say to her, I have to say to you, as I look at all, what are your thoughts, Steve? What are you thinking? You know, and we're just talking because this is serious stuff. Why would I say to her, I got to tell you, honestly, I'm not worried. Why not? Because I've seen the faithfulness of God. And I look back over the times when I was absolutely frantic for an answer from God. And he made me continue to wait. Let me give you a great verse. I love this verse. Isaiah 64, 4. No eye has seen a God like thee who works for those who wait for him. Now, again, that doesn't mean that we're passive and we don't go about our daily responsibilities. We do go about our daily responsibilities. Uh, God's given us an opportunity to love uh, our families in some unique ways right now because we've got more time together. Uh, you can read to your kids. You can read to uh, as a family. Uh, you can talk with them. You can get into their hearts. Get in, look, look them right in the eye. Tell, tell me what's going on. What have you been thinking about? Yeah, I remember when I was 12. You know, that was the hardest year of my life. I remember when I was 12. Yeah, Dad, what was going on when you were 12? Well, and you tell them. Because those were hard years for you. They were hard years for me. They're hard years for your kids. See, it, it, are we waiting on God? Yeah, but let's take advantage of the opportunities he's given us in the midst of this. Uh, Lord, use me during this time. Help me to give stability to my kids. Help me to give them hope. Help, uh, help me to tell them about your faithfulness. That's Psalm 77. We're to tell the next generation so they can tell the next generation about the faithfulness of God. God will take time, but he will not waste time. Why? All right, so we're waiting. Maybe you're waiting on this, or if you go back to work, or, okay, you're waiting. While you're waiting, Here's Isaiah 64, 4. No, I have seen a God like thee who works for those who wait for him. Well, we're waiting, and here's the deal. The longer we wait, the more nervous we get because we think nothing's happening. No. While you're waiting, God's working. He's setting stuff up. He's getting it ready. Yeah, but I need a deliverance by this date. Okay, well, guess what? There's a convoy of ships of mercy from God off on the horizon, outside of your sight line. You can't see them, but God already has a mercy on its way for you because he has promised to do that. Let me give you a second principle. The second principle on waiting on God is that God's delays are not necessarily God's denials. God's delays are not necessarily God's denials. Let's talk about bananas for a minute, okay? So Mary makes protein shakes. I make protein shakes. And we got a lot of frozen fruit from Costco in the freezer and all that stuff. But she likes frozen, she likes a fresh banana. So every once in a while, I'll get a text. Hey, can you get some bananas on your way home? Sure. I'll walk into the grocery store and they got 800 bananas. And I stare at them and I turn around and walk out. Why? Because they're all green. Green bananas are worthless. Have you ever tasted a green banana? I mean, they're bitter. Who wants a green banana? So I walk out of the store. There's, that's why there's 800 green bananas. Nobody wants green bananas. You go down to the next store, and they got the bananas that she wants. 
which are yellow with some green on the end of the stock. What those are? What are those called? They're called RIPE. R-I-P-E. We're in a tight place. Oh Lord, help me, save me, Lord. And 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 we're waiting. Well, God's delays are not God's denials, but know this: God will never give you a green banana. When He delivers, it'll be ripe, and it'll be right. God's all about timing. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, that at the right time, he will exalt you. God's all about timing. We're like four-year-old kids going through the grocery store checkout line with our parents, and they always put the candy and the sweets right at eye level for a four-year-old, and they want immediate gratification. That's where we are. We need to grow up. His delays are not his denials. Oh, I want to, I want to, I want to be delivered right now. I saw some televangelists the other, other, the other night on TV. He was commanding God to do something. Th- that is blasphemy. It's utter blasphemy. You don't command God to do anything. You bow and you humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Who is he to know what is best? He's a fool is what he is. And I tend to be a fool. When I have my plans and I want immediate gratification, that's foolish. That's not maturity. I go to my father. He knows what I need. And my God shall supply all your needs. And he won't give you a green banana. It'll be ripe and it'll be ripe. Trust in that. You remember in John 11, Lazarus had died. And when Jesus found out that Lazarus had died, what happened? He waited two days before he left. And when he got there, Lazarus had been dead for four days. And his sister said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Exactly. He delayed on purpose. They wanted, what did they want? They wanted Jesus to show up and heal him. Jesus had something better in mind. Jesus was going to show up. And when he said, move the stone, Oh, no, don't move the stone because the stench will be so great. Why would the stench be so great? Because he's dead. You see, he was going to do something greater than they could ever ask or think. They, they wanted him to be healed. Jesus was going to raise him from the dead. And there could be no denying that he was dead because of the stench. His delays are not his denials. Third principle is this, when you're waiting on God. When God delays a mercy, he often doubles the mercy. That's true. Think about Job. At the end of that whole story of Job, when he forgave his friends, God gave everything that he had lost, gave it back to him double. Read Isaiah 61, right around verse 7. talks about a double mercy from the Lord. I'll tell you this um, personal story. Back in December of uh, 98, that, that was a tough Christmas. It was a tough year. There was a movement, a men's movement in the 90s called Promise Keepers. I had the privilege of being involved with those guys and speaking at stadiums and football stadiums. It was a movement of God. It was remarkable. In in 98, they announced, and and I had a, a ministry to men, and You'd speak in a football stadium, and then we booked our own conferences citywide. We'd have a host church and a bunch of other churches, and we'd have 1,500, 1,800, 2,000, 1,200 guys. 
I had to hire some additional staff and we just moved into a house that we had uh, purchased. And right after that, I got a call that Promise Keepers was going to go to five additional cities in the next six months. Well, I had conferences already booked in those cities. And I knew we were going to have to cancel those conferences. I got calls from all the leaders of those conferences saying, Steve, can we put your conference off for a year? And I said, sure. But what that meant was, is that I was going to be quarantined. I wasn't going to travel. I wasn't going to get on a plane. I wasn't going to go speak. I was going to be at home and I had a staff that I needed to pay and that they were working. And uh, it, it was kind of like what's going on right now, come to think of it. And I really, and, and we had our income off the revenue from the conferences. That's how I paid the bills, how I paid the staff. And I thought, I don't know how we're going to make it for the next six months. And I watched the account every month and we'd make the payroll and then it would drop. And then the next month it would drop. And I'm thinking, Lord, please send in funds. And I, I mean, he turned it off. He flat out turned it off. And the next month we made payroll and I didn't get a check. And the next month we made payroll, but I didn't get a check. And then the next month I had to break an IRA. I know you don't break IRAs because there's a penalty. And if you're CPA, don't, don't send me an email. I, I know about that. But when that's all you got, you break an IRA. And I broke it. And we're coming up to Christmas. And, I, and I'm praying all this time, Lord, am I in sin? Why? I, I thought you led me to hire these additional people. We asked for your guidance. We, I, don't, I don't know why you're doing this to me. And I was searching my heart if there was sin, if I was in rebellion. Make it clear to me, Lord, I'll, I'll confess it. I'll repent it. I mean, I was frantic. I mean, we're, we're running out of money. And we get right up to Christmas. I'm coming home from a bunch of appointments. My daughter has just flown in from college in California. My parents have just flown in. I'm walking in. We're, they're all there. We're going to have dinner. It's Christmas. I was 100000 in the hole, personally. I had taken funds and loaned them so that we could make payroll. I was going to have to lay those people off after Christmas. Rachel was not going back to college. I was utterly depressed. And as I'm walking from my car to the front door to walk in and see everybody, I thought to myself, if I found 100000 in cash in a bag at the front door, that would get me to zero. That's depressing. Um, walked in, hey, Merry Christmas, you know, had to be upbeat. I wasn't upbeat. We had dinner as we we're sitting down there. He said, oh, that gentleman from North Carolina just called. You just missed his call. And I said, oh, okay, sorry, I missed his call. I wasn't sorry. I didn't want to talk to anybody. He said he'd put a note in the mail to you and Merry Christmas. I said, yeah, okay, great. After dinner, I hung around for a while, and I said, I'm going to go to bed because I'm real tired. I wasn't tired. I was depressed. And then I didn't sleep. I was just sick with worry. Um, I didn't know how we were going to make it. Next morning, I got up, got my coffee, got my Bible. I couldn't even read my Bible. I, I was so frantic with fear. I didn't understand what God was doing, why he wasn't helping me. I went to get some more coffee. The phone rings. It's one of the guys who went by the office to get the mail. He 
He said, Steve, I, I, I'm here, uh, and that gentleman from North Carolina sent a check. I said, oh, great. And I said, yeah, just, you know, make sure it gets in the deposit this week. And he said, Steve, the check is for $200,000. When God delays the mercy, he often doubles the mercy. Now, I want you to know this. I never told that man we had a need. I never called him. I never sent a letter. I never, I never did. I didn't even think of him. But God put it on his heart and the heart of his wife, and they had been greatly blessed by God. And they lived a very modest lifestyle for the amount of money they had been entrusted with by God, and they were givers. And for some reason, God put that on their hearts. Can I trust God with my future? Can I trust God with the timing of my future? Yeah. My kids know that story. And when God delivers you, you make sure that you tell your kids the story. Because one day down the road, they're going to be in tough straits. And they'll think to themselves, you know, I remember when the Lord delivered my mom and dad. I bet you he'll deliver us, and he will. Thank you, Father, for your word and your promises. In Jesus' name we pray.